The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. NetSuite by Oracle brings accounting, finance, inventory, and HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce costs everywhere. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. So head to netsuite.com slash wallstreet right now. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Steve Jelsey, Senior Reporter for Market Watch. We're really pleased to have Boris Jordan with us today. Boris is Executive Director of Cureleaf Holdings. Boris, thanks for coming on with us today. Great to be here, Steve. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So with a market capitalization of about $2.6 billion and its most recently quarterly revenue of $333 million, Cureleaf is the largest U.S. cannabis company. So we're really honored to have um, Boris with us today. Uh, the stock performances this year haven't been great. We're going to get to that a little bit. But some of the other, um, you know, some of the other uh, competitors of of of, of Curlyf in, include Cresco Labs, TrueLeave, Green Thumb Industries, Verano, Ascend Wellness, and TerraSend. Um, all those stocks have been under some pressure this year, and uh, the MSOS, which is the Advisor Shares Pure U.S. Cannabis ETF, is up about 2.9 percent so far in 2023. But it's been a negative ter- territory for much of the year. So, Bor- Boris, before we get into all that, let's sort of introduce people a little bit to legal cannabis. Adult use of cannabis is now allowed in 24 states, including Ohio, and that covers more than 50% of the U.S. population is in legal states now for adult use. About 70% of Americans support legal cannabis, according to the latest Gallup poll. Um, at your dispensaries, Boris, let's get a feel for your typical cannabis customer. Are you seeing a lot of seniors, for example? As a matter of fact, if you take a look on average, um, our customer base is around 52 years of age. So uh, the answer is yes, we do see quite a few seniors and cannabis has largely continued to be used, particularly in the medical states, by the older uh, generation in our country. And and just just so, so, so you walk into a dispensary and what are the people like? Is It's not just a bunch of deadheads, right? No, as a matter of fact... Um, you know, there's a there's different uh, um, companies that cater to different um, audience. Um, Cure Elite started its roots in the medical business before we went into the adult use business. So, although our our um, uh, typical customer is becoming younger, historically we really catered to people that had major medical issues, and so we're coming in to replace opiates, other pain medications, sleep medications using cannabis. And so, um, our, our customer base has largely been. Um, a, a sort of a middle-class um, U.S. consumer, uh, much like you'd see in many other traditional industries around the country. And it seems like, you know, cannabis is, is you know, according to the polls, cannabis is an issue that both Democrats and Republicans actually do support. So what is the most popular product uh, in your in your dispensaries and, and how much do people typically spend? So so the what's interesting is, is that uh, when, when I started um, at, in this business uh, now almost 10 years ago, um, uh, I would say uh, 80, 90 percent of the products that were sold in legal uh, cannabis shops was flour, you know, the traditional smokable flour. Today, that's reduced to under 50 percent and uh, highly formulated products are really taking over those products that can be, um, uh, you know, um, 
branded uh, uh, that have uh, you know different efficacies, have different um, um, uh, um, uh, you know different reasons for existing. Otherwise, you know, sleep products, um, relaxed products, pain products, other things. So as the industry matures, more and more products are showing up on the shelves. More market, it's diversifying the customer base. It's widening the customer base. And so I would say that your your traditional products today are a, a variety of edibles, smokables, vapables, and now the most new um, uh, sort of uh, category is um, uh, drinks. And I personally think that's going to be the largest category in cannabis ten years out. Why is that, Boris? Uh, just because it, it's sort of like it's not, it'd be a lot, a lot like maybe just getting a beer or something like that, right? It's it's a, it's a form factor that American consumers love. We we love our seltzers, we love our beers, we love our you know our soft drinks, we love water, uh, and you know cannabis is going to be a real replacement for alcohol. Many young generations. I was just in Vegas for the big MJ Biz conference. The younger generations are drinking less alcohol, and they want a substitute that's healthier, that makes them feel better, that doesn't have a hangover in the morning and isn't something that's addictive and cannabis seems to be fulfilling that obviously there's regulatory reasons why we can't go mass market with this yet um uh, uh but the fact is we're heading in that direction and i personally think over the next 10 years uh drinks are going to replace a lot of other cannabis related products and become mainstream and and, and the typical customer spends about what 100 bucks in a store and and what would be you say your most popular brand or, or, or you know your most popular so the, product the, 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 Customer typically, depending on whether this is medical or adult use. So in medical states that are still medical, the average customer spends somewhere between $180 and $250 uh, per visit. In the adult use market, they, they tend to spend a lot less because they can come in more often. There's no restrictions. And so you tend to have the spend be somewhere around $80 to $100. So somewhere a little bit less than half of what they spend in medical states is what they spend. In the case of Cureleaf, you know, our biggest brand obviously is Select. Um, it's, it, it's one of the leading brands in the country across uh, formulated products, whether it be vapes or, or edibles. Uh, and uh, our second brand uh, behind that, of course, is the corporate brand Cureleaf, uh, which has been really focused more on the, the uh, medical side and the wellness side over Select, which is much more of our adult use uh, leading brand. And you know, so so how many? And you're in a number of states. I don't know exactly how many states you're in. I think it's like maybe five, maybe ten states or more. And and um, yeah. So how many stores do you have, and how many states are you in? So Cureleaf is actually in 18 states. In 18. The country we're the largest footprint um, company in the United States, but we're also in eight countries globally. So we are the only U.S. centric company that that actually operates a, a significant business in Europe, uh, as well as the United States. Um, and <laughs> And so um, we have uh, over 160 stores in the United States today. Uh, in Europe, it's a very different model. We tend to, it's, it's a purely medical model in Europe, and we tend to distribute through mainstream pharmacies uh, in Europe and direct to consumer. So the two most popular uh, distribution channels are, are pharmacies and direct to consumer in Europe. In the United States, it's uh, the dispensary and direct to consumer in those states that allow it. And and how did you get interested in cannabis? And and how did many of your employees get interested? It's not that old of a business. So obviously you were probably doing something before that. I think you were an investment banking or something. So how how did you get interested in cannabis? And how do your most of employees? Uh, I imagine Cureleaf has quite a few employees now. I didn't check the number, but it's probably around over a thousand. Uh, so you know how do they kind of get into cannabis? And what are your what are your uh, policies for using cannabis on the job? Is is it the same as using alcohol on the job? Right. So we, we are a company that uh, 
was formed 10 years ago. I, you know, I've been an entrepreneur. This is the sixth, you know, uh, multi-billion dollar business I built in my 30-year career. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been in tech, oil and gas, financial services, you name it. I, I try to build companies uh, in areas where I feel that the, uh, they're scalable and uh, there's high barriers to entry. And so uh, I've been very lucky to have a very diverse background in terms of building companies. I got into cannabis uh, about 10 years ago. I, I emigrated back to the United States from Europe. I'm, I was born and raised in the U.S., but I, I spent most of my career in Europe. I came back, children's education, et cetera, and uh, needed something to do. And so came across this, this uh, burgeoning industry called cannabis and decided to get involved in it. Um, you know, we all have our personal reasons. I had people in my family that were using it for, for uh, sickness, for, for reasons of medical reasons. And so I really was fascinated in it, and I got involved together with my partner, Joe Rosardi, uh, in, in, in building Curaleaf. Most of my, our employees, we have 5,000 employees around the country, um, and most of our employees are, are historic users of cannabis uh, for a variety of different reasons. These are people that truly believe in the medicine and the plant. They truly believe in the lifestyle. And so I would argue that most of the people in our company, and, and they come from wide, diverse backgrounds, from you know, large corporate backgrounds in the CPG area, financial services, but also people uh, that just historically had a huge interest. So we have a lot of people working for us that probably, I can't say definitely, but probably grew cannabis illegally in the United States uh, prior to, you know, the legalization laws. And these are people that wanted to get involved in the legal industry, not be involved in the illegal industry. And so a lot of those employees work for Curaleaf today. We're very proud of them. Uh, and as I said, we have close to 5,000 employees across the country. Okay, great. So, so people from all walks of life and uh, people that work hard, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah, in terms of internal policies, it, 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 people aren't allowed to smoke on the job, right? Or they are, you know, any more than they're allowed to drink on the job? Yeah, so we have a very similar policy to most companies. We, we don't allow people to either smoke on premise uh, or smoke during the uh, day um, as they're working, um, uh, except if it's uh, medical reasons. And, and, and for the most part, um, uh, you know, those people that have medical reasons, they do it for those reasons. And, and so they're not, you know, they're not um, in a condition where they can't work. Um, uh, and so, yes, we do allow those uh, those employees that have medical reasons. They cannot smoke it on premises, but they can, for instance, if they have an edible or, or a, a tincture or, you know, a, a slow release pill or something of that nature, obviously they're allowed to take it. So, I mean, you know, in, in cannabis is a lot different from other 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 industries. Um, you know, you mentioned, Boris, that you're an entrepreneur. You've been interested in companies with the barriers to entry or industries with barriers to entry. There's a lot of barriers to entry in cannabis. It's, you know, the regulatory, one of the regulatory things is it's really, really hard to raise capital. You can't, you can't float stock on a, on a, on a U.S. exchange right now because of the federal illegal status of, of cannabis as a, as a, as a schedule one controlled substance. So all, what all the cannabis companies did is they listed on the Canadian securities exchange, and then they have over the counter stock traded here in the U.S. Crazy system. So, could, so how is that starting to evolve? We're starting to see different kinds of listings now from yeah. some companies uh, outside of the Canadian Securities Exchange. What's the what? It's a long. It's been a long, strange trip on the securities. It's been um, a very difficult yeah. one. And the irony, yeah. um, Steve, is, is that you know Canadian or Colombian or European cannabis companies can list on Nasdaq. You know, there's Israeli companies on Nasdaq. There's Canadian companies on Nasdaq. There's South American companies on Nasdaq. But homegrown U.S. companies. Uh, the ones we're supposed to be proud of because we're Americans, uh, we're not allowed to list on U.S. exchanges because our federal law still prohibits 
uh, cannabis uh, uh, consumption on a federal basis. It's a it's a state by state system. So that that is slow. Those barriers are, are Steve are slowly coming down. Um, uh, you know, uh, Curly um, uh, expects imminently here to hopefully uplift to the TSX uh, off the Canadian Stock Exchange. That will open up custody uh, to many many uh, investors that want to participate because U.S. banks have made it a point that that if you're traded on a major exchange and that exchange has done their due diligence, that they're okay with it. And so we have seen, uh, you know, major U.S. money center banks open up custody operations for those companies that trade in the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange. So we hope before the end of the year that Curaleaf will uplist to the Toronto Stock Exchange. That should add a whole different level of investment uh, to our company and liquidity. And we've seen in the past one smaller operator did that uh, company called TerraSender liquidity profile went up three times and their stock was much more trades in a much more stable fashion. There's less manipulation than there is on these liquid small exchanges in Canada that obviously has really hurt. I mean, if you look at the volatility, Cureleaf has been, you know, we went public at $11.44. Uh, you know, we were doing uh, $70 million in revenue. That was the $4.4 billion valuation when we went public back in 18. Today we're doing, you know, close to 1.5 billion in revenue. Um, and um, we are trading at a two point, I think it was nine billion valuation as of the close yesterday. So, you know, we are actually trading at a lower valuation and we've grown, you know, more than tenfold uh, since we went public. And that largely has been the fact that institutional investors in 2018 had to exit the sector due to a lack of custody operations in the United States. So that is starting to change. We're expecting several key things to happen one that's specific to Curaleaf is our uplist to TSX. And the reason we're allowed to do that is because we have a substantial international presence and the TSX has gotten comfortable with that. Um, uh, and we bring fence the U.S. business. So from that perspective, the TSX is a lot more comfortable. However, we're also expecting what we, uh, a rescheduling from the federal government. As you know, the FDA, uh, together with uh, HSS, has, has submitted um, to the DEA recommendation to deschedule cannabis. We're imminently waiting for that to happen now in April. I think it's both a political, but it's also an issue of, of, of just the sheer popularity of cannabis legalization. That will be a watershed event for the industry because it will do two things. One is it will remove a very capricious 70% tax rate off of the industry, which largely means we work for the federal government. We don't work for our, our employees or for our shareholders. We largely work for the federal government. Uh, and secondly, and that's a big deal. So to give you an example on Curaleaf's case, that will that will produce almost you know somewhere between 170 and 200 million dollars of free cash and profitability day one, once that happens. So it's absolutely transformative from a from a profitability perspective for Curaleaf. But secondly, what it will do is it will put a, it will put uh, the DOJ in a position to guide FinCEN and the banking community as to how they should look at the sector. Um, and, and I suspect that the guidance will be positive in that what they will do is say, you can now start to service the sector um, as long as, the, as those companies are abiding by state and federal regulations. And, and that's what we're expecting. And we think that that will be transformative and allow us to operate like any other industry. Um, we're kind of the, um, you know, the the ugly orphan at the moment, and that we 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 operate with completely different rules than almost every other industry in the United States. Yeah, you, you ran over a lot of territory there. Um, I just want to mention to people that are listening: um, if you want to submit questions in Q and A, 
Uh, we do have a few questions here that I'm going to be getting to, but I think some of the, the some of the questions I, I was going to ask Boris are sort of overlapping a lot of the questions that we've already gotten. So Boris, yeah, you, you, in terms of like the the the, de or the rescheduling of cannabis, just to kind of re refresh everyone's memory here, cannabis has been uh, a schedule one, which is uh, on the same level as as heroin and LSD uh, since since the 1970s, since they introduced the federal uh, drug laws. So yeah, there's a proposal right now. Uh, to reschedule it to Schedule 3, which is a recommendation from the Department of Health and Human Services that they've now forwarded to the Drug Enforcement Administration who has the final say over it. So yeah, the, one of the big components there is 280E, which is the tax code, Boris, you were talking about. That Can we talk about 280E for a minute? That was a really crazy thing they passed during the, the Just Say No years during the, during, the, uh, during the drug wars. I guess there was a cocaine dealer that was trying to write off the value of some of his office equipment and making a lot of standard business deductions to his cocaine enterprise. Right. So they passed a law, 280E, to, to combat that. But now it's hitting against the uh, cannabis business, and they pay, you guys pay 70% tax. So is 280E would, would probably go away, right, if it's Schedule right. 3, so right? What, what, most of the states have now revoked 280E uh, that have passed cannabis legislation, uh, and now we're waiting for the federal government to make the next step. We, we, we do expect that to happen. Uh, we also expect, however, there to be an excise tax, like alcohol to be replaced eventually, the 280 taxation. And we think it'll most likely be in the same realm as alcohol, probably based on, you know, THC levels, like alcohol levels. That's the kind of excise tax we expect. Um, so it's not like the federal government's going to necessarily lose uh, revenue, but it will be revenue that will be much more aligned. I mean, the big issue is we can't write off our expenses, right? So so that that's the big issue for us. And obviously, this is very, very uh, uh, high capex, high high expense industry to run. And so um, we, you know, we need that. It's very, very important. It puts us in a level playing field with other consumer goods companies and other product companies that are competing with us today. But the irony behind this piece of legislation is you have things like alcohol and opiates that are, that are, are addictive and are known to kill people um, that do not have this taxation or these restrictions. Cannabis, which is a non-addictive from a chemical perspective drug, and as, as, as there's no evidence that it, anyone's ever died from it, and it has a huge amount of medical, positive medical properties to it, is taxed at that level. I mean, this is political. This is anti-competitive and political. The pharma industry has been very aggressive in, in lobbying these things over the years, and we're very hopeful that this will now change and that the federal government will relook at, at its very, very, in our opinion, erroneous um, decision to do this and, and fix it here over the next several months. So yeah, is there? Is, so we let me let me go to some of the questions that we have here. Um, Ron, this is from Ronald. Uh, can we expect to see pro banking regulation passed in 2024? That's a reference to the Safe Banking Bill, which is a, a measure in Congress that's been kicking around for many many years. Uh, what's your what's your thought on that? Uh, on on that. Um, this is this course. has been a very difficult piece of legislation for the same reasons as rescheduling. There's still a tremendous amount of stigma around cannabis, and there's a tremendous amount of lobbying money coming out of pharma that continues to be against uh, legalization and rescheduling of cannabis due to the fact that it is a major competitor uh, to particularly the, the pain relief of, of drugs that are out there today. And we are doing research right now in, in the UK, together with Imperial College of London, which is remarkable in the, the, the effects we're seeing in using cannabis and the various cannabinoids on pain relief, where we're getting results that look as good, if not better, uh, than opiate drugs, and they have no addiction and no negative uh, effect on your organs and things like that. So 
Um, obviously, this is competitive. Uh, they are fighting against it, and they're lobbying their congressional uh, uh, officers and their senators against it. However, we have more support than we've ever seen before. We got derailed in October due to the shutdown and due to the Ukraine and Israeli situations. However, we are hearing good information that at the end of January, early February, as that they address the new budgets um, uh, and the continuing resolution runs off, that we may have a break in, and be able to get this cannabis uh, safe banking legislation through both the Congress and the Senate. We've never had more support. We're hopeful, but obviously we're not making any predictions. It's, it, it's a political process, and as we all know, they're not easy. And yes, it's not an easy situation uh, for sure. But you have been ramping up some of the efforts around uh, lobbying on Capitol Hill. So that's an important uh, aspect to that. Uh, here's a question from uh, from Jeremy. Um, is there a time frame in which you can see legalizing cannabis in the entire USA? Yeah, I, I think that that's a process. Listen, I think the first step is rescheduling. I think that the Banking Act is, is, is at the same time. Once we get those two things in the books, it's like we see in other states. They start to, as the government gets more, you know, writes the rules, they will get more comfortable, they start to liberalize. And that's what we're expecting here. We'll see liberalization. I think this is a, this is a, 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 a medium term to long term process. And, and you, one needs to also remember a lot of the states are very protective of these industries because they're getting substantial tax revenue. So the states are going to continue to lobby the federal government for some level of, of, of statehood over over these businesses. And so I think there'll be compromises, but I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wait and see progress uh, issue. But I do think we will have the same type of rules we have with alcohol, in, with cannabis and other uh, um, uh, you know, psychoactive pro um, uh, um, uh, uh, products. Uh, I think we'll have the same similar rules in the United States, but it could be five to 10 years, that's my view. Okay, five to ten years. Uh, yeah, it'll it'll take a while, but there's it's it's slowly. And then in the meantime, we have other states coming on. And we'll we'll talk about other states in a minute. Let me get to another question from uh, from one of our our viewers, Harry. Uh, here's a tough one for you, Boris. How does the next presidential election affect the outlook for the continued growth of the cannabis industry? That's that's a that's a that's a very complicated question. But see what you think, think about that. The problem with it is we don't really know who's. I mean, if you look at the two front runners now, um, Biden and Trump, neither one are particularly fond of, of, of cannabis. They come from a generation that, that you know, fought against this. And they all both have personal reasons uh, to not like anything, right? I mean, Biden with the effects on his son and, and of course Trump with the effects of, on his brother have both been uh, very vocally uh, against um, both, uh, certainly Trump on alcohol and cannabis. Uh, Biden on, 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 on cannabis specifically. However, we're seeing, a, you know, the political process is moving against them. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, Biden's administration is certainly looking at, we know they've got focus groups in like nine states, looking at the narrative on the legalization going into, obviously, if they reschedule, they have to deal with that issue. So we know that they're doing it. And the Trump people have been largely quiet on this. But this is a very popular issue with the younger and the older generation. It's a very bipartisan issue. And so I do think we're going to get these things before the election. Um, but we have to see who's running. I mean, if, if there's a younger, like if it's a Newsom or a Michelle Obama, if, you know, uh, President Biden decides not to run, I think we're in very, very good shape with both of them. Um, if it's not Trump and it's a younger, we have to look. The Republicans seem to be more conservative on this matter. 
but we have to see who it would be. We just don't know at this point in time because, you know, I think there's a lot of noise out there about, you know, who's actually going to be running here into the election. So let's sure. Sure. And um, let me see. Here's a here's a question from David. All the hype over the past five years, in my opinion, has not shown pot stocks to be a good investment. Retail growers, landowners, what area is the best for an investment in a pot related company? Um, you know, a Constellation Brands bought Canopy and that hasn't done very well as an investment. So uh, the, the, the question is, what's a good investment in the, in, in the sector? I, your business is up, but but the stock prices are down. So uh, it's it's a yeah. tough. It's a, the other problem too. I might want to point out very briefly is that most cannabis stocks are owned by retail investors. They don't have the institutional money behind them, which is a little bit more stable and less likely to flee or come back. So that's right. that's. And that's and I, I think that's the biggest problem is is that you don't have a good anchor in these capital structures. Um, a, there's a lot of stock that's held by you know retail and 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 not a, a wide retail because. You know, for instance, Robinhood, you cannot buy uh, stocks that are outside the United States. Um, and so it's, it's really held by a very small group of people. The TAM is minuscule compared to what it will become, which is why, you know, the Cureleaf uplist, the TSX is so important because large institutions will now be able to own the stock. And we're hoping over a you know, six to 12 month period to really anchor in a lot of the investors that were in our stock before you know, this prohibition started. When we went public, we had the biggest names in the industry, Fidelity, BlackRock, you know, they were all investors in our IPO. I mean, 96% of our IPO, which was $400 million, was held by long-term institutional investors. But they all had to exit because of the, re the rescindment of the, of the coal memo by the DOJ, by Jeff Sessions under the Trump administration, which created a problem for the financial services industry and in that there was no guidance on how the federal government was going to look at this. Now, there's been no enforcement against banks that operate with cannabis companies, but obviously the money center banks didn't want to take the risk because when there is enforcement, the fines are so big that they didn't want to have it. And so they're sitting on the sidelines waiting. I believe we're much closer to change than we have been in the past. And, and obviously, I, I don't want to make investment recommendations. That's not my job. I'm a, I'm a manager of a, of a business. Um, you know, people need to make their own decisions on what to do. I think it's a very interesting opportunity. There's no question that cannabis will be will have, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollar companies will exist in this space. It's going to take a little bit of time, but I believe they will exist in the space. OK, um, so we have a few, few other live questions here from Matt. Um, why do you think the time horizon is what do you think the time horizon is for either rescheduling or passing of the Safer Banking Act? We already kind of went over that. What is more important for Curalit's bottom line future profitability? Is it the rescheduling or the, or the Safer Banking Act? Obviously, it's rescheduling because it, yeah. just, it just sucks yeah. the life out of all of the companies out there. Is rescheduling going to make it easier for listings, you think? In the, is, is it hard to say? I if, if, I, if it's, I, it's hard to say, but I do think so. Listen, I, you know, my view on this has been I've, been, I've been saying the same thing since the beginning of this federal legislation debacle we've had. Any federal law that goes on the books that says cannabis, we have none today, will open the break the glass ceiling and open the door to further changes of liberalization. So we need, I mean, obviously we can get both safe banking and it would be great, but either one of them, in my opinion, opens the door for further liberalization as we go down the road. And I frankly believe that we're likely to get both of those um, during uh, calendar 24. Okay, great. Um, here's a question from Alan. Why has M&A slowed so much with values at these levels? 
My my answer to that would be it's hard to get capital, but I mean, you, you, I want to hear your thoughts on this. It, it's cost of capital. So the two ways that M&A was being done in the cannabis space was either for stock uh, or, for, or, or for cash. In both of those cases, the stocks are very depressed and, and confident managers don't want to dilute long-term investors that have been with them for a long time at depressed values. And cash is very difficult to get today. Not only do we have a high interest rate environment on a macro basis, but we also have a high risk sector like cannabis, which, you know, interest rates are much higher. I think the average cost of, you know, Cureleaf was very lucky with the lowest cost borrower in the industry. So, you know, we were borrowing and we did it before uh, interest rates moved. You know, we, we have safe financing at 8%, um, which, you know, at the time looked expensive. Today looks pretty good. Um, but, you know, if you were to go out today to borrow as a cannabis company, you'd be paying well north of 10%. Um, yeah, and 20 percent that starts getting very expensive and the amount of capital available for this is very, very low. So that's why we've seen a slowdown in in M&A activity. And uh, as a, let's 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 go to future states here. Um, I guess Pennsylvania and Florida are possibly next. Florida looks really, really uh, good for the a ballot referendum next year. I guess there's a court battle that's going on there, but it looks like it's going to get there. And also the New York market. Um, so, Boris, what are the states you want to talk about in terms of expansion? And then I have a follow-up question about New York Cureleaf, from Adam. Cureleaf, we've got a big, you know, we hope to be allowed to enter the New York market next week. Um, there's, a, there's a meeting Friday, um, which we, we're hoping uh, that Cureleaf will get approved for adult use. Um, you know, move our medical license to adult use license. That means that'll allow us. That's a big market. We're really looking forward to, to working in that market with, with everyone in the marketplace. Um, and we're very um, happy that uh, we were able to reach consensus with the regulator in New York. And, and that's good news, I think, for everybody, for the whole industry. Um, that's got to, that's, that's the second largest, if not the largest market in the United States. So that's a, a big deal for everybody. Um, and we're seeing some enforcement on the illicit market. You probably read that there was some enforcement over the weekend. That's a good that's good news as well. The, the second market um, is that that's really, really meaningful for Cureleaf, but for the industry as well as obviously Florida. Um, it's it's our largest single state business today um, uh, that we that we run at Cureleaf. Um, uh, you know we hold the number two market share position in that state. We're very comfortable. We have 62 stores there. We're very excited about the Florida market. Um, as you said very well, you know we're waiting for a Supreme Court decision on whether or not they're going to allow the ballot initiative to go forward. We fully expect the ballot initiative, if it does go forward, um, to pass, even though it has a higher hurdle. Uh, than other states at 60 percent we you know the medical passed at over 70 so we're pretty comfortable that florida's uh would, would pass it over 60 percent so uh, that's state number two uh pennsylvania you know now uh, sandwiched in between maryland and, and new jersey that are both um and new york uh that are both all three of which are adult use um uh they are behind the eight ball they're losing tons of tax revenues there's a lot of pressure even from the republican party in pennsylvania to uh, move towards an adult use model in Pennsylvania. So I think that's something that's on the horizon over the next, call it 12 to 18 months. Uh, and then for Cureleaf specifically, obviously the, the removal of, of, of cannabis from the narcotics list, the equivalent of our stage one, our schedule one to schedule three in Germany, where Cureleaf is a very large player, that's slated to happen between March 1st and April 1st of next year. Uh, that is an 82 million population market. Uh, that we would get very, you know, we're already heavily involved in, and obviously that would give them a large boost. So there's a lot of, 
step function type growth opportunities over the next two years. And I think that unlike this year, which was a year of consolidation and rationalization for the cannabis industry, I think 24, 25, 26 is very exciting. There's going to be a lot of growth. And for those companies that are positioned and made their investments in these markets, they're going to, they're going to do well, I think. We've gotten a lot of questions here about Germany. Um, here's one from Pedro. Hi, Boris. Can you discuss the state of the German cannabis regulation and how the company sees itself playing in that market over the next 12 to 24 months? So what we're seeing in Germany is very simple. Germany has a quite restrictive medical program right now. It's only about 250,000 patients. Um, uh, and and, and one, the main restriction is that German doctors are only allowed to prescribe a certain amount of narcotics per year. Uh, cannabis falls because it's on the narcotics list. It falls under a narcotic. And therefore, there's a limited amount of prescriptions that can be written for cannabis, and it's never their first choice. Uh, and so what's going to happen in Germany is it'll move off the third choice to the first choice and be removed from the narcotics list uh, as almost a nutraceutical, which will allow doctors to prescribe a lot more cannabis than they have in the past. We expect a three to five uh, times growth in that market over the next 12 months. And obviously, if you, if you compare that market, which is very similar to Florida, you know, that could be... Uh, you know, 10 to $12 billion uh, medical market and call it five years. So we're very, very excited. You know, PureLeaf has a 23, 24% market share position in that marketplace. We're well established and we're very excited that to happen. But, you know, Poland is really starting to ramp up. Uh, UK is a very exciting market that we're in. So there's a lot of markets opening up in Europe uh, and they're growing very, very quickly. And we're very excited about it. Here's a here's a here's a question from Neil. It's kind of interesting about deschedule rescheduling. Do you really think the DEA is going to agree to a law that will take out a large part of their investigative work? <laughs> well, I, I have to say that's a great question because um, I do know that there's been debate at the DEA on budgeting and things like that. And obviously, when you deschedule something as large like this, you will lose probably some budgetary money. I don't know that as a fact, but I've heard that conversation. I, I think the fact is is that. Um, the DEA doesn't really enforce um, um, state-level cannabis today. Anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, and because most states have now decriminalized cannabis in the United States. Um, the large majority of states in the United States have decriminalized. And so there, there's only interstate-type stuff or cartel-type stuff, which the DEA is focused on. And so I, I don't think this makes a huge difference to what they're doing today. And I think there's a su substantial amount of pressure of coming from the political side to to do this finally. And I think the, the scientific evidence is on our side, Israel, Europe, there's been a huge amount of work. I know that the DEA and the FDA visit Israel regularly on this subject. There's been a lot of research that refutes all of the, to be honest, dishonest research that was done back in the 1970s and 80s on cannabis. Right, okay. So uh, Boris, we're almost out of time. We've gotten to a lot of the, um... Um, you know, do you, do you ever see a time where marijuana products can be bought in grocery stores or convenience stores or liquor stores? If so, when? That's a, that's a question from Lee. So that's already starting. Um, uh, we're seeing uh, under the farm bill, um, there's a, 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 a cannabinoid in hemp called um, a THCA, uh, which under the farm bill is actually legal. And, and so you're seeing it across the country in D9 products drinks, vapes, uh, everything but flour, you're seeing all over the country popping up in 
largely smaller, um, you know, bodega type stores, uh, smaller retailers, but we're starting to see these products show up. Uh, and so I think this is just a matter of time. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Boris Jordan, Executive Chairman of Curaleaf, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much. Um, we hope to listen. I uh, hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. My colleague, Market Watch reporter Jessica Hall, will be joined by Rob Williams. He's the Managing Director of Financial Planning at Charles Schwab. They will discuss the milestones of preparing for retirement. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a good day. This is Steve Jelsey from Market Watch. <laughs>